Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. You guys can have a seat. How are we doing this morning? Good? Well, I'm glad that you guys are here braving the snow that has come down. Um, it's interesting that we're mid-March and it's still snowing. So thank you, Indiana, for that. Uh, my name is Josh, one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church. For those of you who don't know me, uh, it is always an honor and a joy to be able to worship with you guys through song as well as opening up God's Word. Um, if you have your Bibles or if there's a Bible next to you, uh, if you would, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 15. Uh, that's where we're going to be in for the most of um, this message. We're going to be taking a look at, um, if not one of the biggest theological discussions that the early church has. And I want to lay that out there immediately because um, sometimes we can look at theology as a boring term or check out when somebody talks about theological discussions. Um, and I think it's important for us to understand that theology is ultimately going to be driving where we go and what we do as believers in Christ. C.S. Lewis would put, everyone is a theologian, just some of us are bad ones. And so it's important for us to understand where our roots need to be, where our source needs to um, be planted in, and where we need to rely on when it comes to how we live life, especially living life in the gospel with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because what we're going to be looking at this morning is what I would say a family matter, right? This, what we're taking a look at, this Jerusalem council that we find in Acts 15, is a matter between brothers and sisters in Christ. So we see Paul, the last couple of chapters, coming through and going out on his first missionary journey. And so as he's going out on his first missionary journey to Lystra, Derby, Iconium, Antioch, um, he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And as these Gentiles are getting saved, what question arises is how are we to live inside of the people of God with the Jews who have grown up in this custom for thousands of years. And so what we're going to start to see is the Jews share their custom or try to place that custom on the Gentiles. And the question then arises, well, how are we supposed to live? Are we still supposed to follow those same customs now that we live in this new covenant? And so we have this question between brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's so important that Paul, after his first missionary journey, before going back out, would buckle down and put his feet in the ground and say, now we've got we've to answer this theological discussion, we've got to answer this doctrinal question before we go back out, because this is important for the church and for the growth of the body of Christ. And so this family matter, we're going to get to take a look at. And what, it's one of those family matters where, um, I don't know if you guys have robust dialogue within your families or robust dialogue within like your friend groups, anything like that, but it's one of those conversations where if you were to walk into the middle of it, you'd be like, well, this is real awkward. And then you'd probably walk out because that's how heated it becomes when we see Paul and Barnabas arguing for the customs and the pursuit of holiness that the Gentiles are given. So we're going to jump in. Um, I think that it's important for us to, to understand what we just talked about because um, it lays the foundation for this early church. It lays the foundation of where they're going, and, and honestly, it could have ruined the trajectory that they were on. So 
Jumping into Acts chapter 15, we're going to take a look at first um, is the controversy, the council, and then the call. Um, I'm going super Baptist this morning, three C's, so if you want to write that down, controversy, council, call, um, and then we're going to ask the question, how does it apply to us today? So let's jump in, um, Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here is the controversy. Um, and before we keep going, let, let's go to the word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time in the word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the truths that we sang this morning. Uh, we thank you for your great love that to us can seem very reckless, that you would call us your own, that you would send your son to die for us while we were enemies, while we were against you and hostile towards you, as your word says. And yet you sought to make us your own by sending Christ who lived the life that we could never live and died a death and rose from the grave. Lord, your love can seem reckless to us because why would you ever love creatures that hate you? And yet this is the pursuit that you show us in Christ. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Um, we understand that from that love we are, have been brought into the family of God and we have unity with one another. We have unity with you and unity with one another. And so I pray that this morning we would see that unity within the church is what is going to show a dark and dying world to your glory. So I pray this morning we would be stirred up in our affections to pursue unity despite our freedoms, despite our preferences, in order to show your great name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what we have here. We have this controversy where the Jews have come down from Jerusalem to talk to the Gentiles basically about the holiness and being called a people of God. And what we see right off the bat is a question that's being asked. Is there something else on top of the salvation or on top of faith that the Gentiles need to do in order to be part of the people of God? So on the surface level, this this passage can seem like, do we need to just circumcise the Gentiles or not? In fact, we first titled this sermon, To Be Circumcised or Not to Be Circumcised. That's the question. But as you get deeper into this passage and start to look at some of the things that Luke points out to us, it's not just about circumcision. But in fact, it's about, is there extra that we need to add to salvation? Or is there extra that we need to add to the faith that the Gentiles have in order for them to become the people of God. And I point this out because we've got two groups of believers. We talked about the Jews and the Gentiles are both here. And what's important is we find that the Jews are the ones coming down and saying, this is how you need to be a part of the people of God. And now I want to give a little bit of grace to these Jews because they're not coming down in a way to turn the Gentiles away. 
In fact, Luke goes very far to show that these Jewish men and women are believers. They're brothers in Christ. They're not pointing the Gentiles away from the Christian gospel, but what they're trying to do is seeking to help them become a part of their Jewish tradition. And so what they're calling for is the Mosaic law and the ritual laws that the Jews would follow. So the Mosaic law, most of you guys would know, would be the Ten Commandments, right? The ritual laws are a little bit different. The ritual laws would include circumcision. It would include things like how many steps a Jew could take on the Sabbath without it considering work. It would also consider or look at what the Jews could eat, what was unclean. In fact, what the Jews were pointing to in order to be a part of the people of God was following 613 of these ritualistic laws in order to obey what God has called the Jewish people to do, to live in holiness. So the argument here is not that these new believing Gentiles, are they saved, but do they need to follow these same patterns, these same laws, these same rituals in order to be a part of the people of God? And Paul and Barnabas are like, no. No, they don't. Because in fact, we have countless, and we'll see in the arguments that they have in the council, we have countless examples of God bringing in Gentiles and not requiring them to follow these ritualistic laws, not placing a burden on them. And so this is Paul and Barnabas' argument before they get sent to Jerusalem. And this is important for us to see as well as a, as a weight and burden that we can often place on people who come into the Christian faith. We can place a weight and a burden on people of like, yes, you've accepted Christ, but now you've got to do this, this, and this. And while these good things, whether it's Bible studies, coming to church, uh, memorizing scripture, doing quiet times, going to community groups, those are good and right things that we want to push people to. They're not what makes people in the family of God. And they can sometimes be burden and weight we put on them in order for them to look like what we want them to look like. And so we've got to understand, this is where the Jewish people are with these Gentiles. And, and I would even say and fight for that the Jewish people are coming from a good desire. They're coming from a place of wanting these new believing Gentiles to be able to be a part of the family of God. But their desire is just misplaced. And that can happen when we don't have a right understanding of theology when we don't have a right understanding of doctrine and what it means to be a people of God. So, Dwayne and I have uh, recently changed some of the things that we've pushed for within our church. If you've been a part of membership classes recently, we've brought up some statistics that I'm gonna read to you here in just a moment, but they've really placed a burden on our heart when it comes to basic beliefs. Because basic beliefs are gonna be the foundational issues in which you live your life out of. Basic beliefs are going to be what you know and believe are true about God and his gospel that he's given. And when those basic beliefs are off, when that foundation is cracking, or when that foundation is very, as Jesus would say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, built on sand, when the storm comes, when trials and, and tribulations come, when somebody comes up against your faith, it is very hard to keep that house on a strong foundation when it's built on sand. And so, some of these statistics look like this. Um, people were asked a question 
what they believe and what they know to be true or right when it comes to salvation, when it comes to um, who God is and who the first created being is. So I'm going to kind of jump into this. The first question is, do you have the ability to turn to God on your own initiative? So in this survey, 82% said they agree, 17% said they don't know, and 1% said they disagree. The next question was, do you contribute to your own salvation? 74% said they agree, 22% said they don't know, and 4% said they disagree. And the last and most astounding question and answer is, was Jesus the first and greatest being created by God? 71% said they agree, 20% said they don't know, and 9% said they disagree. Now, I wanted to point this out because this was a survey done inside of evangelical churches in America. So the Barna Group and uh, Ligonier Ministries went around to evangelical churches and had this long survey and asked them these doctrinal questions, these basic beliefs that we have in the Christian life, and these were the answers. And so when Dwayne and I started reading this survey, we were astounded and shocked because these are basic beliefs that we should know in the Christian life especially understanding that Jesus is not, in fact, a created being, but one that has existed from all time. So what we did as a elder team, what we did as a pastoral staff, is we wanted to start to shift and focus on those basic doctrinal beliefs. Because again, where your doctrine, where your theology is rooted is what is going to spur on your life. So what that looks like for us as a church is that we believe that the Christian story looks like God has revealed himself through the word as well as through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from that belief, from that story, we see that God gives us what we would call our basic doctrines. And if you wanted to know more about what we believe, you can go to our website and check out in more detail. But I'm going to kind of go through some of the basic foundations that we have here in our church. We believe that scriptures are true, authoritative, and sufficient. We believe that there is only one true God, creator of heaven and earth, who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that all things exist for the glory of God. We believe that all humanity, Christ excluded, is sinful by both birth and action. We believe that everyone deserves the penalty for sin and that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who was born of a virgin and is both fully God and fully man. We believe that Jesus Christ died as the sacrificial substitute to pay the penalty for sin, and only through the faith in him and in his work and through repentance can one be reconciled to God and experience the hope and joy in him. We believe that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day physically return, and finally there will be a physical resurrection of the dead, and only those who turn from sin and to Jesus in faith and through repentance will be raised to eternal life. See, these are core doctrines, basic beliefs that we want to instill in you guys because then how you live your life will be shaped and molded by these foundational issues. And from these core doctrines that we have, we believe that ultimately in the overflow of your life, your spiritual disciplines will begin to grow how you pursue the Lord, how you pursue holiness, how you pursue community with one another is going to be from these foundational beliefs. And so the reason I bring that up is because this early church 
had a very shallow view of what doctrine and theology looked like when it came to bringing their brothers and sisters into the family of God. So let's keep going and see what this council has to say to the argument, do the Gentiles need to add something else to their faith? Picking up in verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made the distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through and among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as, is, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has, been, has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So we have everybody arguing here. And finally, Peter stands up. And Peter's argument is twofold. The first one he says is, you remember 10 years ago that God called me to a place and to a man whose name is Cornelius, who is an Italian cohort, who was a God-fearer and seeking the Lord. But do you also remember the dream that I had before Cornelius came? as he laid out all the food that was unclean at that time and said, you can eat. Peter's reminding them that God had already shown them the Gentiles would be added in, but he's also reminding them that in that saving work of Cornelius, there wasn't anything added to his faith. He didn't need to be circumcised. He didn't need to start following the dietary laws that the Jews had been following. What he's saying to him is Cornelius was saved by faith just like we are and there's no need to add to that faith for them to be part of the people of God. The second one that he comes up and says, and this is kind of a dagger towards the Jews at this time. So why do you put a burden on them that even our fathers couldn't carry? His argument is that the law was never meant to save or to continue to save, but to point you and I outside of ourselves as Jews that we could never do this on our own. And I want to submit to you this morning that the same truth that Peter's preaching here, that the Mosaic law, that the law that was given to them is still the same for us. You see, the Mosaic law isn't a bad thing, right? We still want to follow these Ten Commandments that God gives us, but it still shows us that there is nothing that we can do that's going to save us or continue to save us. It has to be something outside of ourselves that's going to grow us in holiness. 
you guys know, or most of you guys know, I am a cancer survivor. And so I often use this example because it correlates with the Mosaic law. So the law represented what the Jews and what as believers we have today, what we cannot do outside of our, inside of ourselves, right? What the law reveals is we are sinful and we need something to save us, but it can't save us itself. And so when I was going through cancer and I dealt with scans and tests and MRIs, what those things showed was that I had a disease, but they could never save me from that disease. And so the Mosaic Law is in the same way that these MRI scans would show I had something that I couldn't save myself. The law does the same. It reveals something in us, and that something is sin. So we can play this game, right? We can just go to the Ten Commandments and look that there is something inside of us that we can't work out or save ourselves. So I'm going to ask this question, and I hope everybody's truthful. Um, anyone in here lied before? Raise your hand if you have. If you're not raising your hand, then you should probably raise your hand now, because then you just lied. Anybody ever been angry before? Yeah? Anybody ever coveted, looked at something that somebody else had and thought, they shouldn't have that. What, what you're doing is you're coveting there. You are saying to God, you're not all sufficient in knowing what they deserve and what I deserve. You see, so those are three out of the ten commandments that we are nailing, right? That we are missing. And that's what the law does, is it reveals that we have a sinful state. It reveals that we aren't just good people that sin sometimes, but that we are sinful people who cannot, no matter how hard we try, and no matter what we do, ever save ourselves or make ourselves clean before God. We need a righteousness that's not our own, but that of Christ's. And that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew, sin, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might receive his righteousness. So Peter's argument here is that why would you try to put the law that we can't keep on them? We couldn't keep it ourselves, so why would you try to place this burden on them? The point is that God has done what they need. We don't need to add anything else to it. They are being saved just as we are by the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. And just like that, the arguments fall silent, and Barnabas and Paul stand up, and they're backing their boy Peter, showing that the Gentiles have been saved throughout the land, and we haven't been adding any type of law to it, but just preaching Christ and him alone. And finally, James stands up. And if you don't know who James is, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And I often like to mention this because history tells us that James didn't become a believer until after Jesus was resurrected. Now, if any of you have siblings in here, I think we can all understand that that's, sure, that I would probably do the same, right? If I'm growing up with a brother that's telling me that he's going to be the savior of the world, I'm probably not going to believe him. It's like, I grew up with this guy. This is how he treated me, which Jesus wouldn't have treated him bad, but still. But then he sees Jesus raised from the dead, and all of a sudden, he realizes, yes, 
this Christ figure is legit. I, I've got to place all my hope and my life in him. And so James gets up, and he's giving this argument that ends up being different, but on the, along the same lines of what Peter and Barnabas and Paul are saying. His argument is to go back to the Old Testament, to show and to prove that this was God's plan from all along. That God's plan was to bring a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself out of the Gentiles. And because this was God's plan from all along, we don't need to trouble the Gentiles by giving them something extra in order to be a part of God's people. So here we are. At the end of this council, the apostles, the elders, the leaders, the church had come together to lay this foundation for the early church. To lay this foundation that these Jewish rituals were not indeed needed for the Gentiles to live and be a part of the people of God. Which, to be honest with you, most men probably were praising the Lord they didn't have to become circumcised. Which, by the way, Dwayne and I have had these conversations. How do, you, how do they know? Like, is somebody standing at the door? Is there like a ministry of like, you need to check if they're circumcised before they can come in here? That would be super weird and super awkward. Brooke, you down for that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, anyways, they, so, so this is where this council gets to, is that we don't need to be adding anything extra onto the faith that has already saved both Jew and Gentile. Now, if you're following along in this council, you'll see that James, in fact, does give the Gentiles a list or law of requirements to, to follow. And so we're going to see that in the next section. But the first question that we came to in this passage is, do the Gentiles need something else to be added onto their faith has been answered? No. And it's been no because of experiences, because of what Peter and Paul and Barnabas have walked through, as well as what the Old Testament shows us in regards to the Gentiles being added to the people of God. And yet we come to this list, we come to these requirements then that James gives these new Gentiles. And this part of this passage, I think, is going to be the most important for us as believers in Christ today as we look to bring unity within the fellowship of Christ. And so let's keep reading and see what James has to say to these believers here. He says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And they write, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have come out from us and troubled you with the words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they sent down... They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So we come to this theological discussion, the end of this debate in the early church. And two questions arise. Why would James say that we don't want to lay a burden on these Gentiles and yet give these lists of requirements that almost look like the law? And the second one is, if we are to not lay these burdens on the Gentiles, if, if they don't have requirements in which they're to live, then how are we to have fellowship with them? You see, the, the issue that arises right, if the Gentiles don't need to look like the Jews, well, the Jews still have things on their conscience or freedoms and liberties that they don't live in, that they're having a hard time being able to fellowship with the Gentiles who don't believe these same rituals or don't follow these same dietary laws, right? You're not going to have a Jew in the Old Testament come to a Gentile's house and they're going to be frying up some bacon. That's just not going to happen. So how to how does this early church live in unity with one another if each of them have their own lifestyle, each of them have their own preference, each of them choose to have their own liberties and freedoms? And so James answers that with these lists of requirements. But what he's doing is he's showing the Gentile church that, hey, your brothers in Christ as Jews you need to be aware of some of these things that they have on their conscience, that they've grown up in, and now would have a problem coming to your house and eating. So the freedoms as a Gentile that you live in, you might need to put down. You might need to say, hey, even though I have the ability to say yes to this, I'm going to choose my freedom and not in order to bring my brother and sister into this house so that we can fellowship. You see why this doctrine, this theology that we see in this early church is so important is because what Luke is pointing us to is how to have unity despite our freedoms and preferences that we all have. And this is how it applies to us today because there are preferences, there are freedoms, there are liberties that each one of us have that if we were to place our foot in the ground, we would not be able to have unity with one another. So that's the first thing. second thing here, and this has more to do with us today in this church, is it, it can apply to the larger church, but what I want to draw us to today is that we are a covenant people. When we enter into a covenant with one another, we are saying, I am for you, I am going to lay down my desires and preferences and liberties in order to seek your growth. So when you say yes to the district church, when you say yes to one another and living and sharing life in the gospel with one another, you are saying, I will lay down those liberties in order to bring someone in to be able to have fellowship with them. Right? I think the easiest example that we can 
probably talk about where everybody will understand is a simple, a simple example of alcohol, right? Most of us have probably grown up where alcohol is okay. Some of us have grown up where it's taboo, right? And in, in the church, it can be a hot topic taboo of whether you are to drink or not to drink as a believer in Christ. If you look, my opinion, if you were to look at Scripture, uh, it's not my opinion, I think if you look at Scripture, you're, there's not going to be a place in which you're going to find exegetically you're not supposed to drink. But I think that it is wise at times and understanding your liberty to be able to say no, right? If you are having people over your house and you are fellowshipping with them and you know that somebody has a problem or has problems in the past, as a believer in Christ in order to edify and build up that person who's coming to that party, it's more wise to say no to that freedom and liberty than to go to them and say, hey, as a, as a believer in Christ, you're not bound to this, and to tell them how to walk in their conscience. You see, what sets us apart as believers in Christ is understanding that the world lives in their freedom. The world every day lives in their liberty and doesn't say no to it. But as believers in Christ, we are called to be set apart from the world. And so at times that means putting aside those liberties and freedoms, not just alcohol, whatever liberty and freedom that you might live in in which you've got to say, hey, I'm choosing to not do this because I want to be able to have fellowship with people in the world. What that does to people around us makes God and his glory look good. Because all of our liberties, all of our freedoms, all that we've been given in Christ are for his glory. Right? So understanding that a good steak, a good scotch, a good cigar, those are good things that we can enjoy with one another, but oftentimes other people don't have that same belief or same conscience as you might. And so in order to bring God glory and to show his grace and to bring someone into fellowship, we might have to say no. We might have to abstain or we might have to live in the freedom of not doing what we enjoy. And so that's the whole point of this council here in Acts 15, is James is showing the Gentiles as well as the Jews is this is how we live in unity with one another, by looking at our freedoms and understanding that our brothers and sisters might have different conscious consciences than us, and we've got to be aware of that in order to put aside some of our liberties and freedoms to be able to fellowship with them. And so that's why it's so important for us to, to take a look at and have these foundational doctrines be forefronts for us in our Christian walk. Because this is how we start to choose unity over our preferences, unity over our freedoms is understanding that all these things have been given to us for the glory of God, but some of them might not be the best and wisest things to choose at times in order to have fellowship with those around us. So we're going to close this morning in the same way that we close every single Sunday. We're going to celebrate one of the signs that we have actually been united with Christ. 
and we've been united with brothers and sisters in Christ. When we take communion, yes, we are reflecting and celebrating what Jesus has done for us in living a life that we could never live, dying the death we rightly deserve, and being raised from the grave. Yes, we celebrate that, but in that communion, we're also celebrating who we've been covenanted to in the family of God and who we've been united to. So in this time, as the band, if you guys want to come down and, and we can begin to celebrate what God has done for us in communion. Let us be reminded of the freedoms that we've been given in Christ. Let us been, be reminded of the liberties that we have. But also let us know and see that there are people who have grown up in different contexts. There are people that have grown up in different walks of life that our freedoms might hinder our fellowship with them and understand that the unity of the body of Christ is far more important than leaning into that freedom and then leaning into that liberty. So this morning as we celebrate communion, we understand that Jesus took on the wrath of God in order to unite us to him. By giving us his righteousness, it allowed us to become sons and daughters of God and because of this truth, we can now live in unity with one another. And because of this truth, we now live in unity with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And he loves us and delights in us. So we're going to take some time. If you need a moment to think through what we just talked about, if you have a sin that you need to confess, if there's reconciliation that needs to be had between brothers and sisters in Christ, take that time before you go to communion. But after that, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate who we've been united to, both in the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, as well as to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have an eternal bond that one day, even in our freedoms, even in our preferences, we will all be worshiping together the same great God in glory. So let's take some time. I'm going to close out in prayer, and then we can celebrate. Lord, thank you for what you've done in Christ. Thank you that through him you have united us to you. That you have called us out of a people to be your people in order to show your glory and grace to this world around us. Or as we look at passages like this and, and we're challenged with some of the things that we may rail up against. Whether it's saying no to freedoms and liberties, whether it's being able to have discussions and dialogues with people who don't always see eye to eye. Lord, in this passage, it shows us as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be able to do that because we've been united to you and united to each other in this eternal covenant. And so, Lord, I pray as we continue to grow in grace and our knowledge of what you've done for us, Lord, I pray that we would be able to lay down freedoms and liberties in order to be able to fellowship with those around us. Lord, I pray that our hearts wouldn't be that we would choose our own liberties first, Lord, to lay those down. Lord, I pray that as we seek this unity, the world around us would know your great grace. As Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a church that loves one another well, that fellowships with one another well, that has, ability, has the ability to lay our own pride and lay our own liberties down in order to show your great grace and mercy. Thank you for all you've done. We praise your great and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at